Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Here we are again, Explore FI Canada. Thanks for joining us in this episode. Chrissy is with me and I am the Money Mechanic and we have a couple extra guests at the round table today, which is really exciting because this, we're going to discuss a topic that I am woefully inept to be able to share any expertise with our listeners. So we have Court from Modern Family. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to have you here. And we have Carrie from Money in Your Tea is her blog. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. We have you as the uh, quote-unquote expert, although I think between Chrissy Court and yourself, you all have children. You're all fairly well-versed in today's topic, which is going to be a deep dive, uh, starting off with the basics of RESPs, and then sort of getting down into the weeds and learning all we can about them. And one of the reasons we wanted you on the show, Carrie, is because you've got some great articles on your blog, which is money in your tea and you've written RSP investing from newborn to high school and you've also written the mystery of RSP withdrawals revealed so it's all new and good stuff to me Chrissy looking forward to doing this show yes I I'm so excited court was so nice and she spent a lot of time putting together a huge list of questions for Carrie and uh shown us that she knows quite a bit as well. So we're excited to talk to both of you and to help our listeners learn more about RESPs because there is actually quite a lot to know once you dig in. And there are some little tricks that uh, if you pay attention, you can maximize your grants and make sure you uh, benefit the most uh, possible from the RESP for, for your children. So why don't we start with Carrie? How about you introduce yourself to our audience? Um, just a short little one minute intro to tell us who you are and um, what you do. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Carrie and I, my background is in economics and uh, I've worked off and on in economics over the years. I took a number of years off to be a stay-at-home parent and homeschooled my kids. And um, now I work part-time for a couple of economics associations. Uh, and about a year ago, I started my blog, Money in Your Tea. I was feeling like I needed to do something new now that my kids are getting a little bit older. And I've always liked personal finance, and I thought this would be a way of uh, learning myself and also sharing my own experience with others. That's wonderful. And you're especially qualified to speak about RESPs because you have four children. <laughs> and, yes, I do. Yes, and at, at least one is of the age where you are withdrawing from the RESP for her. Is that correct? That's right. My eldest is just finished her second year of university. Wow. And my second is just finishing grade 12. So we're just getting into this again with starting to perfect him in the fall. Great. Yeah, because Court, you just have a little one, right? Yeah, just a little two-year-old. She just turned two in April, so got plenty of time, you know, for the RESP to grow, but um, always something to that, you know, something that I'm interested in. If it's money-related, I'm interested. Yeah, and you're, you're <laughs> planning way ahead, which is excellent because yeah. we, should, we should start um, as soon as we can with the RESP. We'll get the most benefit that way. So how about we start off with the first question? I'll, I'll let Money Mechanic take this one. All right, so we are talking about RESPs, which for everybody or maybe some of our listeners don't know, that's the Registered Education Savings Plan, I believe is the right acronym. Did I get that right, guys? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hope so. Yep. Anyway, 
We'll start off just with a little bit of the basics. What is an RESP? Who should have one and who should not have one? Well, as you say, it's a registered education savings plan. So it's a plan set up by the government of Canada. It's intended to help mostly parents, but other people can also open an RESP for uh, children. So it could be grandparents, it could be a godparent, it could be aunts and uncles, uh, anybody who would like to help contribute to saving money for a specific child's future education needs. And um, it's the biggest help is that the government uh, gives a grant of uh, 25, 20% matching uh, what you put in. So if you put in $1,000, the government adds another $200 to it. So um, that's a big help right there. And so it would be great if all children could have one, but absolutely kids uh, from parents who are struggling with their own finances, those families need to prioritize their own uh, retirement savings over their children's education savings. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is something that I've heard repeated many times, not just um, in Canada, but in the U.S., that you should prior always prioritize your own retirement first because you have far less time to save up the money um, and your kids can take out student loans, you know, in the worst case scenario, and they have many years to work to pay those back. So, well, it's ideal if we can all start our ESPs early, the priority should be people who are, are um, needing a larger retirement nest egg. So we'll move into the next question. Can you tell us, Carrie, where can people open RESPs? Uh, can you open it just anywhere or are there specific places you have to go? Sure, you can open an RESP account at a bank or an investment company, credit unions and trust companies. Um, and those are probably the most common ones. Uh, there are also something called a group RESP. And if you've ever been to the new baby show or something like that at a convention center kind of thing. You've probably seen a lot of salespeople trying to push these types of RESPs and they work uh, somewhat differently to the ones at banks and investment companies because all of your money is pooled together with all the money contributed uh, for other children of that same age and um, the growth is divvied up between those children as they reach um, post-secondary. So it sounds like maybe a convenient option. So what I've read also is that they're, while they're convenient, they can be quite expensive and they're also really restrictive and you may not be able to get your money out if you change your mind and don't wanna be in the pools uh, RESP anymore. That's right, there is a risk from what I've heard. I don't have specific um, experience with group RESPs myself, but I have read of people who had not been able to make their monthly payments for one reason or another. You know, life happens, it gets in the way, you uh, have a tough financial year and you can't make that payment one year. But sometimes, depending on the fine print of these group RESPs, um, you might lose your spot in that RESP and you've lost everything that you've deposited to that point. Or if you can get your money back, it's less a lot of the fees that they charge and you lose out on all the growth as well. So, um, I'm not really a fan of them myself. Um, <laughs> I'm not either. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not either. And mm -hmm. I, I just want to mention an article that Jen Y. Money wrote about these recently. Uh, mm -hmm. You should give it a read. And I think you'll be pretty convinced to stay away from these. I, I think the 
downsides far, far outweigh any of the benefits. I mean, they do take care of the investing decisions for you, but it may not be what you want to invest in anyways. It might be too conservative for your own taste or not conservative enough, depending on uh, what you would prefer to do. And you can also go to an investment company or a bank and get quite valid advice there if you're not sure what to invest in. Yeah. So for those who are on the FI path, most likely you'll um, be happiest going with something someone like quest trade or a bank that offers a discount brokerage and just using maybe a one fund etf and investing it that way but of course we're not giving investment <laughs> advice here so <laughs> do it yourself but um, <laughs> most likely you'll want to stay away from these group resps and uh, i'll let court have the next question just before we go ahead, I just wanted to mention that within an RESP, you can invest in all different types of things. So it's quite like an RRSP that way. So you can have it in a savings account, a high interest savings account, mutual funds, stocks, ETFs, bonds, bond fund, all kinds of different assets within that classification. And that can change as uh, your investing goals change over your child's age because obviously you probably want to be more risky when they're young and they've got years to uh, recover if there's a stock market crash mm -hmm. rather than risking that money when they're in grade 11 or 12 when uh, you haven't got that time on your side anymore. Mm -hmm. Those are all good points. Yeah, good point, Carrie. The easiest way to think about it is just another account, just like a RRSP or a TFSA, like you say, Carrie. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, I want listeners to understand, you know, it's just a warehouse of where you're going to put these funds and then what you decide to allocate within that account is up to you, right? Whether you're DIY more, you know, in a quest trade type of thing, or if you want to go into more of like a trust or a group RESP, that's your decision. But if you want full control, you know, the best way to go about it is, is to go that DIY route, which most of us in the FI community tend to be, and then you can pick how you want to allocate those funds. That's right. I have a quick question before we move uh, on from this section is, are you allowed to have more than one RESP account open per child? I, I gather you wouldn't obviously get the uh, grant money, but could you have two separate investment accounts going for them? Yes, you can. So okay. if the parents want to open an account and then the grandparents want to open an account as well, you can do that. But you are just restricted to that same uh, amount of grant each year. You can't get double the grant because you've got double the accounts. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're in the position where we have two RESPs because there is a grant in BC, the BC Training and education savings grant, I believe it's called. Uh, it's it's specific to the RESP, but it's only for kids of a born in certain years. And because only my younger son qualifies for it, we had to open a separate individual RESP for him just to hold that at a separate institution. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, Court, why don't you uh, move on with the next one? Okay, so this kind of goes in line with what we were just talking about. So what is the max contribution that the subscriber can contribute over the lifetime and what government grants are available? So you can contribute up to $50,000 uh, during the lifetime of that RESP, but the government will only do the 20% grant on uh, up to a $500 grant per year. So if you're maximizing up to the grant only, that would be contributing 2,500 each year to get that $500 grant. And the grant maximum is 7,200. So that would be 
$36,000 of ERIC contributions to maximize that grant. So this is like huge. This is the biggest benefit of the RESP is the fact that the government is essentially giving you a 20% boost in your portfolio immediately, right? Like you put in the $2,500 and next thing you know, within a week or two or however long it takes to process, you have another $500 to invest as well. So, you know, anyone listening with kids, like this is why this investment account is so important. Like where else can you get a guaranteed 20% return from the get-go? Literally nowhere, right? So that's the big takeaway of this account, right? It's free money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well, and definitely one of the reasons why you want to get this started as early as possible, for sure, to take a, advantage of that. So this, um, maybe you can sort of let listeners know when this program started and how have the grants and contribution limits changed over the years? The RESP, as we know it, started in 1998. And at that time, you could contribute $2,000 per year and get the 20% match of 400 And then in about 2007, they increased those limits to 2,500 per year with the 20% grant of 500. So it hasn't changed a whole lot over that 22 years. No, it hasn't kept up with inflation. (laughs) No, and especially post-secondary inflation is even higher than regular inflation. So I just read in the paper today an estimate that for children born this year, the cost of post-secondary could be $100,000. So I think that uh, the government really needs to have a look at this and start increasing um, the amount that parents are allowed to contribute, the maximum amount parents are allowed to contribute, and the maximum grant that they'll uh, match to, because you just can't save $100,000 in this program the way it's currently set up, unless you're very lucky in investing in something risky. So also another thing to note is that that lifetime benefit has remained at the 7,200 total from the government, right? So that hasn't changed at all since 1998. That's right. One thing I would like to point out too is if you receive um, the CESG, which is the basic grant that everyone receives when they contribute, you may also qualify for something called the additional CESG. Uh, And my husband and I, we qualified for this in the early years because we were lower income. We were on one income and he wasn't earning very much in the early years when our first son was born. And I didn't realize this, that it adds on to your maximum lifetime grant total of 7,200. And so what happened is my older son, he, he maxed out his grants earlier than I anticipated. And so I kept contributing for you know, a few more months until I realized, oops, I'm not getting any more grants. And it, it wasn't until then I realized that. So if, if anyone is receiving the additional CESG, just keep that in mind. And also know that there is another grant that you could qualify to receive. Do you want to talk about that one, Carrie? Uh, sorry, do you mean for um, lower income families? Yeah, the, the Canada Learning Bond. Yeah, I'm... Um, I'm not terribly familiar with that from personal experience, but uh, if you are contributing to your RESP and your income is below somewhere around $45,000, I think they will uh, give a slightly uh, higher grant from the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the the Canada Learning Bond is actually a separate maximum, which is uh, possibly nice for those who are in the fire community and they are able to retire early and they live on very little, they could 
uh, very easily qualify for the additional CSG as well as the Canada Learning Bond. Yes, that's true. I'm just uh, filling in the blanks for myself here. I gather that the acronym CESG stands for uh, Canada Education Savings Grant. Yes, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I notice like when I hear acronyms on podcasts, I'm like, hmm, I guess I'm going to have to go look that one up. <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay, right on. Court, go ahead. You've got another comment. Yeah, um, just some more info on the Canada Learning Bond. So essentially what is it is, it's an initial $500 that's offered by the government of Canada, which can help you start saving, you know, now, like when your child's newborn or whenever you do start your RESP. And then every year you could be um, able to get an additional $100 until the child's 15. So in total, I believe your child can re receive up to $2,000 in additional um, funds through the Canada Learning Bond, in addition to the grants that we talked about before, that 7,200 other grant. So that's kind of the, the benefit to being in a lower income situation. Mm -hmm. And like Chrissy said, depending on when you fire and leave your job, your income might bring you down below that $46,000 threshold and boom, now you have a hundred extra dollars that you can contribute or get as a grant, excuse me, and then invest with. Mm -hmm. So nice job, Chrissy, bringing that up. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do want to mention one more thing. I'm not sure. I believe that you have to separately apply for these things, these additional grants or the learning bond. And uh, I don't think they're retroactive, meaning that you can't catch them up if you haven't applied in the early years. So it's best to look into all these things as early as possible because uh, you'll get the maximum benefit that way and you won't miss out on anything. Right. Yeah. I think there's only like a leeway of like a one year catch up. So if mm -hmm. you started it at age 10, you could get it for one previous mm -hmm. year, but yeah. Um, so Carrie, what's the maximum age that you can contribute into an RESP? So most people um, are parents starting the RESP when their child is little uh, and then kids graduate from high school and go into post-secondary either right away or within the first couple of years of finishing high school. But you can actually contribute into an RESP for 31 years from when it's first opened. And uh, then you have another five years after that before you have to wind it down. So you have quite a long time to contribute into an RESP. And you can even open one as an adult for yourself if you plan to go back to school in the future, but you're not eligible for that Canada Education Savings Grant. That only goes up for children age 17 and under. And the max limit that you can contribute into an RESP is $50,000. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, I just wanted to go into just a couple little numbers since I'm a numbers nerd um, for any listeners here. So I'd, essentially, you, in order to get this max $7,200 from the government, the idea is you want to contribute $2,500 a year, in theory, ages 1 to 14, for a total of $7,000 from the government. That's $500 a year for those first 14 years. And then another $1,000 in the following year, year 15, to get that remaining $200 of the CESG benefit or some variation like that before that 18-year uh, limit comes in where you can't get that CESG uh, benefit anymore. So if you do the strategy where you're putting in a total of $36,000 on your of your own and in, in theory you assume 7% growth over those first 14 years and then if you switch to a more conservative 3% growth towards the end at age 18 you can estimate that your child will have about $76,000 to put towards their education. Another scenario is if you contribute 
just a straight shot $2,500 a year for all 18 years, that means you'd be contributing $45,000. So you're still not quite at the max. You still have room for another 5,000 if you want. Um, but you, with assuming those same assumptions, uh, the 7% growth over 14 years and then 3% growth years 15 to 18, you'd have about $88,000 in the portfolio. Um, so just wanted to run some numbers there. And just to note that when I say year one, that's the year baby's born. So really age zero. Year two would be the year they turn one. You can contribute starting January 1st of that year, essentially. That's right. And in fact, you can, if you want, put that extra 14,000, I mean, extra quote unquote, in, in the very first year, if you want to, you'll only get the grant on 2,500, but then you've got it earning in income over the 18 year period until they finish high school. So you might be able to increase the value of your total portfolio, but that's assuming you happen to have an extra 14,000 <laughs> sitting around yeah. as well as having a newborn. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And also I, I guess this kind of a gamble because if your RESP is too big, um, I, I know that you, you can get your own contributions out, but it, it may be more money that you have to figure out how to shift out of it later if you don't need all of it. It's a good problem to have though, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> True. Quick question here. Um, when I open a RESP account, do I just go to my financial institution or online, and I may be jumping ahead in the episode a bit here, but do I need to also fill out paperwork with the government or is it just sort of like me opening up an RRSP account at my bank? Yes, it's similar to opening an RRSP. So you go to your bank or your whatever financial institution, investment company, and uh, you fill it out. Your child needs to have a social insurance number and so do you. Um, but that's really the only requirement. Okay, that's good to know. It's just something that I was didn't want to forget. And um, I guess we can move on to uh, the, the schooling now and what choices that uh, your child or maybe perhaps the parents make for, for school uh, down the road. Does your child have to go to school in Canada? No, they don't. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very flexible. And can it be anywhere in the world? And are there specific institutions that qualify? The Canadian government has a long list of institutions on their website. Um, in Canada, that would be universities, colleges, but also trade schools, apprenticeship programs, uh, CGEPs in Quebec, um, pretty much anything where there's a learning component after high school. It's fantastic. We're pretty lucky that they're that flexible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another question we wanted to ask you then is, this is always huge on a lot of people's minds. What happens if your child does not go to post-secondary? What do you do if, if that's the situation? Well, you have 35 years to decide. So it could be that they're 18 and they don't know what they want to do with their life. It is a big decision and it's an expensive decision. So you don't want to get that wrong. And, um, and so maybe they decide to work for a couple of years or you know, when it's not coronavirus time, maybe they would travel the world. Um, but um, so you just hold on to that for a few years and maybe they decide to go back to uh, post-secondary learning at some point down the road and then they use it then. If they get to be in their 30s and they're like, I'm never going to use this, then the government will take their $7,200 back and 
the amount that you put in as the parents or the subscriber, whether your parents or grandparents or whatever, uh, comes back to you and the growth then becomes taxable and there's a 20% penalty on that. So you do get some of it back. But if you have room in your RRSP, you can roll it over into that without penalties. So uh, that's another option. So were you, Carrie, were you ever worried our ESP would not be utilized for what they were intended for and you'd have to figure out, okay, what do I do with this money now? Was that ever something you were worried about over the years? No, we never really worried about that. Um, I mean, it's so wide open as to what your child can go to in terms of post-secondary learning that uh, I would be surprised if most uh, young adults don't go to at least one of them within like before they turn 35. So, and even in the worst case scenario, then, you know, we can always roll it into the RRSP or uh, you can also roll it over to other children if you have uh, other kids in post-secondary, as long as they haven't maxed out their contribution room. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot of people get hung up on the whole 20% penalty. They just hear that and they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to invest in an RESP. I'll find another better alternative out there. But I mean, I think people get hung up on that portion of it way too much because like you said, you have 36 years for your kid to figure life out if they don't go to school right away, right after high school. You know, they still have almost, you know, years to figure that out. And if, and if they haven't, you know, and they decide school isn't for them, the grants are the only thing that would be lost, which was free money anyways. So, you know, it's really nothing out of your pocket. Your contributions would be returned to you free and clear tax-free since this was still contributed with after-tax dollars, all of your contributions. So that's money you're just going to be handed back. And then the, it's only the earned income from the investments that is subject to that 20% penalty. And what I, how I like to think of it is that, you know, like you said, also that you, if you have the RRSP room, you can contribute it I think you can tr contribute up to $50,000 into your RRSP penalty free. So if you have that room there, that's one option. And really like it's a good problem to have, right? Because like for us, you know, we're not counting any of our RESP money into our fire calcs. We view this as money towards our children and how they decide to go in terms of education is there. So really like this money would simply be gifted to our kid so that they can start their entrepreneurship endeavors or go travel around the world or, you know, whatever it is they wanted to do instead of some for formal schooling. So I think it just provides you and your children with that optionality that if, the, if they don't feel like schooling is for them within those first 35, 36 years, then okay, this money can be utilized in other ways. It's just deciding where it's going to go instead. Mm -hmm. I, right. I love that you bring that up, Court, because it, it is a big chunk of the worry with RESPs. And you're right that people, I think, um, stress over it a little too much. And we do have to look at really how we can withdraw it. And it's not actually as restrictive as mm -hmm. people assume it is. So it strikes me that there's really no downside to these accounts. If you can come up with a contribution room and you can get that 20% from the government, you've got 35 years to figure it out. It would have been a fantastic problem for me to have when I was 35, have some money sitting in there and maybe go back to school for something. So yeah, it's really interesting. Now, I asked a little bit earlier about how many accounts you can have per child and things like that. Are there differences between individual and family accounts? And are there pros and cons of using the two? There are some, the biggest uh, difference is that with a family account, you can name more than one child on it. So if you have 
two children or three children or four children, you can have them all within one account. An individual account is, as its name would imply, per one person. So if you preferred, you could have an individual account for each of your children rather than having all of your kids in one family account. There are also some other minor differences, like if you were uh, the favorite single auntie and you wanted to contribute to your niece and nephew's education, you would have to take out an individual account for each of them because you're not a parent or a grandparent. But those are sort of like minor differences around the edges, but the accounts themselves work the same way. So it sounds to me like if you had children that were very close in age, it may make your life a little easier to have a family account. Whereas if your children are spread apart in age, you might want individuals. Just from, from me looking at that from the outside going, I may want to manage the investment differently in the accounts. Yeah, we have one account for each of our children rather than a family account. Uh, for all of them because there's a nine-year age spread. I mean, not that we knew that when we had our first child uh, because you don't know how many kids you're going to have and what the age yeah. spreads are going to be. But that's how it turned out. And it, just trying to wrap your head around at this point, I mean, my youngest is in grade five. So our investment strategy for her is that she's still got like at least eight years to invest before we have to take that out. So it's fairly aggressive. Whereas my uh, eldest is in university and my second eldest is starting post-secondary this fall. So we're very conservatively invested for them and trying to do that all within one account just seems like mind-boggling to me. But if that works better for you to have that all together. Uh, but when you contribute, you do have to say you're contributing this much to this child. So it's kind of earmarked for one child or the other within that family account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do have to be specific with your brokerage, uh, who you are contributing to. Otherwise, they'll, they'll just assume and split it 50-50. And sometimes that's not what you want. Mm -hmm. So Carrie, if you were to decide that you wanted to switch from individual uh, accounts into a family RESP. For instance, a family might want to do this if they had one child to start and then they have a second or more children and they want to convert to family RESP. Is that a difficult process? You can actually open a family RESP even with one child. Oh, okay. um, and if you never have a second child, that's fine. It can still stay as a family RESP with just one beneficiary. But uh, if you want to switch down the road, you just have to make sure you make any changes through the bank. You don't want to be withdrawing your money in cash and walking across the street and then <laughs> depositing it somewhere else. It's just like an RRSP. Yes. If you want to switch institutions, <laughs> mm -hmm. you have to get the institution to do it. Okay. Okay. So it's not, it's not a huge nightmare. You, you can do it quite easily mm -hmm. as long as your institution handles it. Yeah, we recently switched institutions and it was a long drawn out process, yeah. uh, slightly painful, but uh, yeah, it, it happens. Okay. They're pretty reluctant <laughs> to let that money go, aren't they, when you want to try and change institutions? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so Chrissy, um, Carrie's mentioned that she has individual accounts for her four kids. I know you have two kids. How do you, you have your RESP set up? Are yours individuals for both of them or do you have yours under a family account? Ours was a family account because for me, the benefit of being able to shift money from one to the other, I mean, you can't shift the grants, but all the other money, the gains and our contributions can be then allocated to either child. Uh, for me, that 
gave me some peace of mind to know it was more flexible that way. But I can also see in Carrie's situation and others um, that I've spoken to, where when you have quite a large spread in the age of the kids, that would be too much of a headache to manage as far as the investments and uh, keeping track of everything. So I can see the benefits of both, but my kids are about two and a half years apart. And so it made sense yeah, for us sense. to have a family account. If you're like most of us, getting life insurance is something you know you should do, but you never seem to get around to it. You're right, Chrissy. Now there's a better way to buy life insurance. It's called Policy Me, and I think our listeners will love it. More than 37,000 Canadians have already used Policy Me for their life insurance quotes. Yeah, I've actually tried it myself, and in less than 10 minutes, I received a selection of quotes from reputable, established insurers. It's fast, free, easy to use, and no pressure. Sounds great. I heard PolicyMe uses intelligent technology and personalized advice that recommends what you need, but not a penny more. You could save hundreds of dollars per year on your policy as top insurers compete for your business. Protect your family. Get your personalized quote today at explorifycanada.ca forward slash PolicyMe. All right, so we kind of started discussing a little bit about the investments and things you can hold. And Carrie, you have a, a good little graph on your blog here, the one that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is RSP investing from newborn to high school. And as we know, being DIY investors and many of our listeners who are probably doing some form of DIY investing as well, that you're going to have some different risk tolerance um, depending on the age of your child. And that's going to impact what you choose as far as investments go. So we'll talk a little bit about contributions and investments in this section of the show. And I just want to ask you, Carrie, what has your contribution strategy been? How much do you, as a subscriber, contribute per year per child? So we try to uh, get the maximum grant, of course, because who would turn down free money? Uh, but <laughs> um, you know, during that time, there have been years that money was tight for one reason or another. You know, I mean, my third child was born, and the eldest wasn't even five yet. Uh, I was gone from working part-time to being a stay-at-home parent and we bought a new house so you know there were some expensive years where we didn't uh, manage to make all of our contributions that year but you can catch up on one extra year's worth of contribution down the road so if you miss say for two years you can double up for each of the next two years to catch up on what you missed and they will match that grant I don't know if that was exactly your question, though. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's really good to know is, is that having that one year that you can catch up on to get in there. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that there is some flexibility here, whether you're making it a lump sum, whether you're making it a monthly payment, or like you said, life happens and you miss, you don't max one year, then you can top up. So this is really good to understand that these uh, options are available and that's pretty flexible. For yeah, you. it's a very flexible program. Now, as far as what we invest in, which I think was what you're actually asking me, um, definitely in the early years, we we're much more um, invested in stocks. Uh, we started opening our accounts at banks, uh, and they, of course, have mutual funds rather than ETFs, but our oldest was born in the year 2000, and so DIY investing in ETFs wasn't the thing in 2000 that it is now. And so as our understanding of investing uh, grew and changed over the years and ETFs became much more popular and we moved those accounts into a self-directed uh, investment 
company. So, um, so now we're in ETFs, but the idea is still the same that uh, when the kids are younger, we have a lot more in uh, stocks and that's Canadian stocks as well as US and international stocks. Um, and then as they get older, we have more bonds and then um, GICs, guaranteed investment certificates, because bonds themselves also go up and down, although not typically as much as uh, stocks. And, you know, with the, I mean, just look at the, what the markets have done earlier this year. If I had to go to my 17-year-old uh, and say, sorry, honey, you can't go to college next year because your RESP just dropped by 30%, I don't think he'd be very happy with that. So uh, as they get through high school, you want to really start locking in those gains. At least that's how I feel about it. But for us, we wanted to lock in those gains and be satisfied with having enough rather than having the most we could have. So you're mentioning, Carrie, that your, your asset allocation, you shift it as your kids age, and then you're going more heavily into bonds as they get closer to needing the money. Uh, and so, GICs as well. GICs. Okay. Yes, of course, because mm -hmm. the GIC ladder is extra safe and uh, a lot easier to access. Um, so I want to ask Court now, <laughs> what is your planned asset allocation as uh, your it's your daughter, Finn, ages, and any other future children you yeah, may so have? Yes, so our thought is, right now I'm thinking of keeping individual accounts and thinking it, this is your money, Finn, and then this is your money, baby two, if we end up having baby two, and whatever it ends up being, it ends up being at the end. That's just my thought right now. Now, of course, Finn's only two, and we only have one kid at this point, so who knows how things will shuffle and change. Um, in terms of contributions, we're putting in, our plan is to put $2,500 a year over the course of 18 years, um, so we'll put in $45,000 dollars potentially more I haven't decided yet if we want to do more than that to get to the full 50 but I kind of like that 2500 number so that way we get to that full government match um, that we can get annually and then just continue above and beyond that and then in terms of how we're investing um, we have ours set up with quest trade or DIY quest trade lovers and um, right now we're 100% in stocks um, in particular, VUN, um, which is essentially the Canadian equivalent of VTSAX that tracks the overall U.S. market. So while there's, you know, there's over 3,000 funds in there, it's only U.S.-based, so a lot of people listening may not think I'm diversified enough, but um, that's the fund of choice for us at this point. And for now, my thought is to keep it there for at least the first 14 or 15 years, see how the portfolio has grown, and then possibly um, adjust into more bonds or more GICs at that point, or just continue to let it ride. Um, we'll just see how things are shaping up, where tuition costs are, where the portfolio's at. If our daughter has any idea at that point, if she wants to go to school or delay it for a year or two, which means we can let it grow in, in stocks and equities for a longer period of time, things like that, and, and kind of just make it a bit more fluid than a set schedule type of thing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of our thoughts for now. How, how about you, Chrissy? I know you've got two kids that are approaching, you know, almost university. So what's your thoughts on all this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I often have a slightly contrarian way, way of handling it. And partly it's because I, I work with uh, Ed Rempel, who is known for his unconventional wisdom. And so I originally, before I met Ed and started working with him, was following the Canadian couch potato advice of 
as Carrie has done, gradually moving towards GICs or bonds uh, as the kids get older, just to ensure that the money is is safe and uh, it's going to be there when the kids need it. But since we started working with Ed, he uh, did a full financial plan for us and he determined that even two years ago, we already had more than enough to pay for both boys' education, uh, for full four-year university education at um, in 2018. And so he figured that uh, if we continue contributing the way that we were and the growth kept snowballing the way it was, that we would have more than enough. And so he said, just keep it at 100% equities. And that's just what our whole portfolio is. And it's... Um, a simpler way and for us it, it, it's aggressive for most people but for us that's it, it just works for us that's how we invest and we're comfortable with that and so that's what Ed's advised and that's what we're going with and it's not right for most people but <laughs> one thing to note with that Christy is you're not withdrawing all the money as the first year that mm-hmm. your child's in school right so I think that's also important to realize is even if there is a dip while they're in high school or approaching university you know some of the contributions that you're taking out will be impacted, but you're not withdrawing all of it from the get-go. You're only paying as you go, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it is a very short time frame. I mean, the average, I mean, a typical university program is four years and college programs are two years or three years. So uh, it's not like retirement where you retire at 65 and then you live till 85 or 90. So you're gonna go through at least two business cycles even during your own retirement. Post-secondary is a very, very compressed period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so I I think it's, if I didn't have a, an advisor uh, guiding us along the way, I don't know if I would take this approach but because we have a, an expert guiding us, I feel comfortable with it. But again, I, if it was not for Ed, I probably would have just followed the Canadian Couch Potato Guide where he, I think it's approximately 5 or 10% that you decrease it by um, your equity uh, allocation at, starting from around age 11 or 12, I think. So that to me sounds like a very reasonable and comfortable way to sort of scale down the, the RESP um, volatility as you get closer to post-secondary. And that's the personal part of personal finance is you mm-hmm. have to make the decisions that can you can sleep with at night. Absolutely. So if you're comfortable with uh, all equity, then that's what you do. And if you're not, then you make different choices. So Carrie, a question regarding your investment strategy. Since you have four kids, has the strategy been the same for all four children? And if so, has their portfolio balances varied widely? And what I mean by that, like if you're looking at the balance um, at the same age for each kid. So say kid one and kid two at age three and age five and age 10. Have you noticed that their balances have been relatively the same or have you noticed quite variations since the, you started investing at different ages or different dates depending on when they were born? Yeah, we have a similar uh, investment strategy for all four kids. It's not locked in stone where, you know, they're 12th birthday, I suddenly go and sell a bunch of equity or whatever. It's it's not that rigid, but just the concept of being internationally diversified in mainly equity when they're young and then getting more conservative as they head into sort of middle school and then high school uh, has been similar and will be similar for the younger kids. And yes, absolutely. Their portfolios have been quite different at similar ages because we started, my eldest was born in 2000 and the next in 2002. Um, and then 
uh, my third was born in 2005 and then 2008 happened and the markets crashed and uh, of course we had a lot more invested for the eight-year-old than we did for the three-year-old so um, so that impacted her more but then that's kind of what we would expect to happen is that they would have uh, different amounts and and there's no real good answer for how to make that fair amongst your kids if you end up with one child who has an extra say ten thousand dollars because the markets just happen to be better when you invested for that child uh, because if you haven't maximized your contributions to uh, your other kids you can reallocate to them but if you've maximized your contributions for all the kids then you can't really formally do that within the plan uh, so, but then the cost for post-secondary will also be different for kids as time goes on. So if they end up with more money, it might actually just cost them more to go to school. Right. And worst case scenario, they end up having to take out some loans and it just motivates them to pay that back, like gives them more reason and more reason to hustle early on, right? If they do have some loans, like I don't see if they end up, if your RESP takes a dip and you can't contribute a hundred percent. Like I don't view that as a failure. Like I had $65,000 in student loans to my name, which I know is unheard of for most Canadians because I went to school in the States, but that's ultimately what made me start my journey here is just wanting to kill off that debt. So, I mean, I, like you said, there's variations and you can't beat yourself up over, you know, what the market does and doesn't do over the time. Yeah. I mean, if only we all had a crystal ball to know when to get out of equities and put it all into <laughs> yeah. cash and then when to get back in again. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about asset allocation within there, and we could get a little into the weeds here for a lot of people that are new to DIY, but I understand how you've talked about having high equities at the beginning and then moving towards safer uh, GIC or cash savings towards the end. So what's the cost to reallocate that within these accounts and rebalance every year? How do you do that and what are the costs? It depends on the plan. So uh, when we were with the bank and investing in mutual funds, there was no cost to buy and sell mutual funds. Uh, and to switch from one thing into another. Now that we're at DIY, DIY investing, um, the plan that we have is $9.95 per trade. So uh, that's what it is. If we sell uh, some of our ETF and buy uh, something else, but uh, buying a GIC has no cost to it or selling a GIC. Right, you just need to be aware of the, the, the mature, maturation dates if you're going to mm -hmm. need that cash. Okay, mm -hmm. that's interesting. So it sounds to me like it it operates very similar to any other kind of uh, do-it-yourself type investment, whether that's at uh, a RoboVisor quest, uh, quest trade or mm -hmm. whatnot. Actually, one thing that I should mention, uh, within the RESP, even if you're in a locked-in GIC, uh, the student can still withdraw money from that to go towards paying for their post-secondary education. So it's completely non-intuitive because you think locked in is locked in. You know, that's the point of it being locked in is that you can't access it, but they actually can. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. hmm. um, so when you get a grant money from the government, can you walk us through the processing of that? Do you get a check in the mail? for that CESG portion? Or does it go straight into your portfolio? Does it go into your portfolio as cash? Or does it get distributed as whatever you're investing? Can you just walk us through you know, how it goes from CESG grant in theory to actually in your portfolio and growing and investing in there? 
Sure, it goes directly into your RESP account. And, um, and so you're, there's no check or anything. It goes directly to the bank or the investment company or wherever you have that fund. And um, if it's in a mutual fund, it gets automatically allocated into the same proportion that you're currently invested in. Uh, if it's DIY investing, then it comes in as cash and then you make that decision on your own. Uh, like any good DIY investor to uh, how you'd like to invest that uh, grant money. Okay, great. And I just wanted to stress to listeners, you know, if you're going the DIY route, it is going to go into your account, but as cash. So then you need to take that ne next step and choose which fund you want that cash to go into, or else it's just going to sit in cash until you notice it months or years down the road. So <laughs> just realize there's an one more action step of getting it and converting it from cash to whatever your fund of choice is if you're going the DIY route. Mm -hmm, that's right. Considering we're already 45 minutes into this deep and interesting topic, we decided to make this a two-part episode so that you, the listener, have a chance to digest all this information that's coming at you. We covered the basics, some contribution information, and got into some investing on this episode. Look forward to the next episode, part two, where we get into the withdrawal strategies and how to use your RESP when your children start post-secondary education. Thanks again to our guests, Carrie and Court, for joining us on this episode, and we look forward to having them again with us on part two. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. One, leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Two, tell your friends and family about us. Three, use our referral links at exploreficanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at exploreficanada.ca. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet.